Well, we took a little break, but now we're back. <laughs> we always meant uh, to come back. We always meant to come be back for uh, unlikely pilgrims. Uh, but a lot has happened since. <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. putting it mildly, Doctor. Wow, Pepper. a lot has happened. Um, Where were we? Yeah, uh, in just since election day. <laughs> um, and when we talked about the Republic, we it <laughs> little did like we know we, we were prophetic. <laughs> uh, it's not it's not uh, common for Presbyterians to be prophetic, but we were. <laughs> That's right. So those rare moments. Chalk that one up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, yeah, there's there's real fear that the Republic was yeah. in trouble, and yeah. I'm still not sure it's over. Right, right and right. we're recording this. Uh, on January 22nd, so right. it's a good couple weeks after the uh, January 6th, right. uh, what some of the media are calling the Great Insurrection. Right, right. Um, I guess that'll go up there with Whiskey's Rebellion <laughs> and everything right. else. Future uh, historians, a lot of dissertations. Oh, there's lots of dissertations yeah, yeah. that will come out. Chapter in the new textbooks. Um, but, uh, and then we had uh, inauguration of right. uh, Joe Biden, uh, the 46th president. Um, Historic uh, with yeah. Kamala Harris, first vice president, uh, first female vice president, right, right. first uh, vice president uh, with African American descent as well right. as South Asian descent. Right. Uh, so that's a, a a huge, and then of course even our senators the election right it was yeah. first African American senator from Georgia, yeah. uh, first Jewish senator from Georgia, first yeah. Latino senator from California it's replaced uh, uh, sen- then Senator Harris now right. Vice President Harris so right, lots right. of fur- lots of history. Right, Very on. historic time period, just in this month. So, um, and just to be clear, we're not talking about any of that. No, we're not. We're not. <laughs> but what we're talking about is is how the church um, is yeah. processing this, right? And I think we have to get specific. Really, is how evangelicals are responding to this. Yeah. And another podcast can be on what's an evangelical. Right. So we're not really <laughs> sure what that started is there. Yeah. yeah, but um, what. It seems as if Christianity Today had released an article recently just on how uh, the title was something of the nature of, you know, why all evangelicals don't agree about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, Even after January 6th, a lot of evangelicals had to do some reflection Mm. on their endorsements of Donald Trump, Mm. you know, and uh, it came out today. As as of today, his second impeachment trial will begin next week uh, over the January 6th event. Um, Ed Stetzer from the Billy Graham Center Wheaton wrote a very interesting article for the USA Today. The title is something of the nature of evangelical needs a reckoning. Evangelicalism needs a reckoning. Uh, and so a lot of this is over uh, Donald Trump and, and the support evangelicals gave for Donald Trump. Um, even uh, David Brooks wrote a very interesting article about the state of evangelicalism yeah. in, after the Trump era. And that's not even what we're here to talk about specifically, because I think all of those articles, all of those stories are only part of the bigger story. And what we're actually seeing is, uh, and and we heard this in in, in President Biden's speech, the the, the issues that he sees the nation facing. Mm -hmm. We have a pandemic, we have an economic issue, and he's very clear that we have a race problem. And so he feels he wants to address that. And what we're hearing, what I'm hearing... What seems to be in the blogosphere, um, talking to parishioners, talking to clergy, I'm hearing a lot of conservative evangelical churches mm. are divided. Mm. One, either over whether you vote for, voted for Donald yeah, Trump right. or you didn't. 
Uh, and that's sort of what the CT article dealt with. But the other issue that has not been talked about as much in some of these articles is that you have some churches that are divided between those who would vote for Donald Trump mm-hmm. and those who would not. Mm-hmm. And then you have might have another segment of group who is uh, sort of un, uh, un-nuanced, mm-hmm. pro-critical theory, mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have other people who, as soon as they hear the weird criti- word critical theory, they repel. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and so I think the problem is actually much larger yeah. than even what David Brooks and Ed Stetzer and this article from Christianity Today was laying out. I think yeah. it's, there's a, many ways the, the church is mirroring the polarization yeah. of the culture. Yeah. Could um, we say it this way more? Because I'm, as I'm thinking about this, I think one thing that's come up in our conversations is that we had a time when there was a, a Cold War on, which generated a lot of cultural crisis. We can go back and look at the 60s and see how the Cold War infiltrated, not as an external war here, mm-hmm. but it actually became embedded in our own cultural conscience so that we were fighting the Cold War here in New York, let's say, in, in Stonewall in 1968 and 69 or wherever we want to call it. And I think what, what we see then is the church occupied a very specific place in the Cold War. It took on, in the Culture War, Cold War, it took on one segment, segment, and the silent majority in 1980s, the church appeared as this, you know, fairly unified organization against leftistism, whatever you want to call it. Right, right. But could it be that what's happened in the interim is that the the Cold War and culture war has now seeped down at the bottom of the church, and now the church is engaged in almost that same contest in a way mm-hmm. that it took a position on almost not unanimously, but fairly close to that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now it's absorbed the culture war in itself. Mm. So now we're actually occupying both sides of the culture war and starting to fight over that. Because what I hear in your question is that the church cannot find a unified position from which to analyze yeah. or evaluate yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Is it fair to say that we've, we've, instead of taking a position on the Cold War, we've simply just ingested the Cold War or been ingested by it? We ingested the cultural war. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even, even I think maybe this is part of the where we historians have to clear out the weeds for people. And part of why I wanted to have this conversation is I think there are a lot of believers, a lot of Christians, I've talked to Christians, I've talked to pastors, who are legitimately just concerned. Yeah, yeah. And I've gotten phone calls, texts, emails from people saying, uh, parishioners, pastors, former students saying, can you help me understand yeah. what's happening? Like my church is, it feels like my church is in the middle of a civil war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, you know, in my head as a historian, I'm like, you should have seen 1845, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, and then 1860. And again, I, I, I think too, I, I get this. This isn't the first time that evangelical Christians have been at cross purposes. Right. right. Um, the, the 1860s were very much part of that in the sure. 1850s, 1920s, the 1920s, yeah. and then even in, the, I would say, even in the 1960s, um, yeah. we. We tend to see the evangelicals with Billy Graham and and, and kind of more the the, the pro Nixon and that right. type of thing. But we also need to remember there's actually a good body of literature now on what's known as the uh, min- you know the, the minor or the silent majority or the minor uh, major- uh, moral, <laughs> moral moral minority. minority. Yeah, That's yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, with with guys like Richard Mao and Ron Sider and and Jim Wallace in the in the late sixties right. and seventies. So there was a a response to that, and I think it was in '72 that the, that you had evangelicals from McGovern, you yeah, know, running yeah. against yeah, uh, yeah. Nixon. So th- there's been this, um, but I, I think that it's more prevalent today. The the maybe the uh, 
it's not as unified yeah. as the religious right is not as unified as it may look, yeah. which is interesting because yeah. if you just look on the media reports, it looks you would assume if you're not in the know right. or part of the tribe that this is, must be a pretty monolithic group because 81% yeah. of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump twice. Mm. So you would assume by that yeah. that that must mean that these churches are all walking, but that's actually not what's happening when you get down beneath the surface, yeah. uh, which means that either those statistics <laughs> right. uh, are, are questionable, um, and I think they are, not because the pollsters are wrong, because of how their people identify sure. personally. Um, there was an interesting article in the Washington Examiner uh, even interviewing some of the rioters in January 6th who would say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Right. So, okay, so that right. might, so maybe that 81% is not as representative of the church goers. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's why we're starting to see some of this. Uh, some of the statistics have shown that if you are college educated, you are more likely not to have voted for Donald Trump mm -hmm. uh, and to be more open to issues of race and justice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Interesting, right? Yeah. All this interesting stuff. And so what I hope we could do is spend some time, take a couple of these podcasts to just what I think historians do well, clear out the weeds yeah, and yeah, what's yeah. there, how did we get here, yeah. uh, what is exactly happening right now, how did we get here, and how do we move forward? Yeah. What, what, what are some things? And I don't think we have any answers here, sure, right? Sure. That, that's sort of the tagline. Also, something podcast. historians don't do, right? Something. No, no. And, I, and I've never met a good historian who's a good futurist <laughs> yeah, so, or bad, a prophet. Yeah, it's a bad combination. Um, but but I, think our, I think our instincts were right about the republic. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm still concerned about the state of our republic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of question marks. Um, but I, I'm, I'm equally, and probably more so, I'm more pained by the state of the evangelical church. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you and I both work for evangelical institutions. We attend evangelical churches. Um, we would probably nuance that word evangelical for right, people. Right. Um, but here's, and here's the problem. I think, Mark, what, what I appreciate about our conversation, or at least trying to put this into some historical narrative, is that it's, it's not, it is not unusual for the church to divide. That's obviously true. C.C. Gowen obviously is very clear about the fact that the broken right. church leads yeah. to a broken... Nation Which is a phenomenal book Great on book. the split of the three major denominations in the mid-19th century. Right. For, for those who have not read it, it's worth your time. It's worth your time. And, and it, does, it does lay out what seems now a pattern. Yep. But, but what, what's different, I think, about the pattern and maybe why we're feeling it so distinctly, and this I think goes back to my, my question at the beginning anyway, is that there's a shared cultural value that most people perceive we have. Some people feel really outside of that. Mm -hmm. um, some people, most people felt sort of part of that in the mainstream. So yeah, Nixon election in 68 is a, is a, is a huge win. I mean, it's not even close, right? Because even though there's all the vocal voices, the main cultural, the cultural mainstream is pretty monolithic. But the, 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 what's happening now, and if I'm, if I'm keying into some of your concerns, is that it's not just that there's disagreement, but there's um, villainization going on to the point yeah. where if, I be, if I'm a church and I'm a Christian and I believe this and you don't, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. Um, you, you raised that question to me before and I, I was actually, it's so funny you say this because I had, was sitting with a friend, an elder, another elder of mine at our church we go to and a, and a kid who's in our care group, he's a kid, he's mid-20s, he's trying to figure himself out and where he's going. So we had a conversation, we were just chatting and he said, I don't see how you can be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. If you vote for Donald Trump, yeah. I'm going to assume you're not actually a Christian. Yeah. And, I'm think, and I think from that conversation was... I understand we stand on a shared foundation and we can disagree on things that are important, 
but not gospel centric. Mm -hmm. But now a political issue or a stance on whatever it might be, and I can get into what, why he said that, a stance on that issue actually becomes gospel centric. Yeah. So the, the point is we don't, we can't even say we're all Christians and we disagree on these various issues, but now you're not even a Christian if you don't agree with me. Yeah. That, and that's exactly what the CT article is getting at. Yeah. You know, that's what even Christianity Today and is, is, is hearing, right? Yeah. People contacting the editor saying, this is what's happening in my church. How do I process this? Yeah. And then there's other people who, uh, I've talked to people who they might not say something like that. They actually feel almost beat up mm. uh, mm -hmm. because uh, they're white. <laughs> you know, the, the way, say, the racial issue is yeah. being addressed, they're saying, I feel like I'm being beat up just merely by being white. Yeah. And when I talk to other people about it, instead of trying to help me understand, it becomes more of a militancy. So I've heard that. Yeah. Um, and, and in the then, church. In the church. In yeah, the church. Um, I, I, I've heard, um, and I think part of the, the, the vitriol that, that's happening that we didn't have in the 19th century. Yeah. I mean, who knows how bad the Civil War would be if we had social media in 1865. <laughs> and... And uh, in fact, some, I said to somebody, they were, they were talking about social media and the American Revolution. I said, I really don't think we would have had the American Revolution <laughs> if we had social media because it's kind of bad for the republic. Yeah, right. And so what's happening is that Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, are maybe they're not shooting each other like they did at Gettysburg, mm -hmm. uh, but they are destroying each other um, through their communications yeah. on Twitter on Facebook, on Instagram, and people are having full-out battles yeah. at 244 characters. Right, right. Uh, that's just not healthy. Right. Um, that's just never going to help us, yeah. right? Um, it's why I like podcasts. I feel like if it brings... <laughs> seriously, it's a conversation. Yeah. And if it takes an hour to flesh it out, we're going to do it for an hour. And if you can't sit and listen to it for an hour, you pause it and come back. Yeah. Uh, but some of these things take time to process. And I think... So, so it's not just even the, the content that that's so disturbing it's how we're communicating with yeah, each yeah. other uh some of the things i've read online comments and stuff uh and again i think people get a certain uh muscles when they get behind a screen yeah, uh yeah. some of the things that people will kind say of tall and bulletproof when you're yeah it's yeah. it's the equivalent to beer muscles at the bar <laughs> right, right? right when guy has five or six drinks and right. now he wants to fight the biggest guy in the place yeah. um yeah it, the same thing think happens with one social on, online yeah um, so let's talk a little bit. I mean, let's talk about what these issues are. I think for some people, they only know the caricatures, mm. and that's difficult. Mm. Uh, I've had people contact me, Mark, and say, Mark, what is critical theory? Yeah. What is critical race theory? I don't know what it is. What can I read? How can I understand it? Uh, I heard if I even sniff about it, I'll become a communist. Um, <laughs> other people say, you know, I, uh, I voted for Trump, but I'm not a fascist. Right. Is that possible? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so if we can try to help clear some of those weeds and, and kind yeah. of where we've gotten to, and maybe we need to get, and I always tell people you need to understand the long story. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you are a professor who teaches a class on the 1960s. Yeah. Um, and so maybe we need to start in the 60s a little bit and kind yeah. of help people understand how our society has gotten to where we are. Yeah. Um, which it, it, it almost, uh, a number of people are almost taken aback when you tell them in 1960, you know, in the 1960s, uh, it wasn't as if all the evangelicals voted Republican 
and all the non-evangelicals right. voted Democrat, right? Yeah. That's a 1970s story that started in the 80s. Is really yeah. Roe v. Wade and yeah, yeah, and um, and so that's that's a big part of it. Um, well, and to your point, I think this you said clear out weeds, and I think this is it's a helpful metaphor because I think what and you're right, famous word historians can help a bit is that you tend to evaluate the decision people make in reaction to the present set of circumstances as it is. You've got an African-American being treated this way. You should react in this way. So you're good. Yeah. You got George Floyd. Um, you shouldn't, this is, this is an, an incident I'm looking at and he didn't deserve this and therefore he should act this way. That becomes the entire reference point. That's of course a crucial reference point. Yeah. But people don't come into the George Floyd incident as if they were born yesterday with a John Locke and tabula rasa right, or something. Right, right, right. But each one of these things happens as part of this very long, I think as you say, narrative. Yeah. So we are all caught up in evaluating these moments by those narratives. And I think even for millennials and younger who aren't aware of the fact that they themselves are tied up in these narratives. They think they're free of them. And, right, I, and I, right. I, this, is, this is the question I get from a lot of millennials. Like, this isn't our problem. We didn't cause this. Why is right. everyone thinking this way? Well, you weren't like born the in Billy America. Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start we the didn't Fire. We didn't start the fire, right? Yeah. It's right. always burning. Right, right. We're just right. warming ourselves by the, by, the, you know, yeah. by the heat of it. Yeah. But the reality is, whether you like it or not, the millennials and the rest of us have moved into a stream of current that's already happening. Yeah. And yeah. so an issue that you could very coolly and calmly, if you came from Mars and you came and looked at it and went, oh, I can see the injustice from righteousness, those moments are also tied into, and, and that's not, it's not ignorance, and I think this is where younger folk need to understand. These things do have long intellectual consequences. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, to, and to move in certain directions and say, the way you should handle this moment is make a decision, let's say critical theory or Trumpism or whatever, as if somehow that, that is not connected to long narratives or not tied into long problems is yes. a massive mistake. Now, one thing, I, one thing I'll say to students, and this is, this is to understand the 1960s properly, is however treating someone equally sounds right, and it is, to do that in such a way that even allows the door open to communism, which yeah. may sound ridiculous, even to crack that door for people in the 60s who watched communist revolutions kill between 100 and 150 million people yes. between 1935 and 1955, yep. you understand they can't just without okay, go, oh, I don't care if you open that door. This, right. this is right. 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 There, there are other consequences that come with it. And even if you're not aware of that, those long narratives, I think this is your point. If you're not even aware of those, it doesn't mean they're not there. Exactly, exactly. And, 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 and go back to the African-American, uh, you know, an Afri someone asked me a question, you know, why, why would people be against voter IDs? I asked that question. Right. I said, okay. I said, and they gave me their logic for it. You know, you, you, you can't drive a car without an ID. You can't get on a plane yeah, with an yeah, ID. Yeah. And I said, I, I hear you. I said, but if I were African-American, I'm going to put myself in their shoes. And, and knowing that you know African Americans really didn't get the right to vote completely until yeah. the 1960s, right? Last yeah. the, you know, in, in law, not in even law. in reality. Right. Right. A, exactly. Yeah. Anything. <laughs> That's right. Anything. That's right. That could keep me from the ballot box or be used against me in That's some right. way, I'm going to say no. That's right. I get it. And now, and now you want to look at that objectively, quote unquote, and say. Yeah. I see no reason why someone can't accept a voter ID because it's just right is missing this entire narrative of 300 years That's right exactly. of momentum and structure and institution yeah. that has kept African Americans from the vote. Yeah. And so you can't lift them out of that sequence of events yes. as if somehow this is just a one stone. And there's, there's something in all of this where the, there's a desire, and this is what's weirding me out. 
there's a desire to ignore an actual cultural and historic memory from the other side. Yes. So, so the, the one group, the critical theory says, let's do 1619, right? We're going to rewrite the history of the United States to show right. that the past is all racism up till now. And in a lot of ways, they're right, but they've ignored that there are also things like the survival of the public and law and constitutionalism that also had a long history and a value. Yep. And then the other side wants to ignore slavery like it didn't happen. Like, yeah. You have an opportunity. We ended slavery. We all died for it in the 1860s. We passed legislation. It's done now. Right. So we want to we want to get that out of our memory. Right. But then remember liberty and freedom of the American Republic and fighting against tyranny as if that's the only memory that we have. Yeah. Yeah. We're constructing our own myths. We are. We are. And, and, to, and ignoring entire other sets of there's myths. There's a myth making that goes on here. Yeah. Uh, that um, that I think this is part of the problem. It's how we re- yeah. choose to remember it. Right. Um, and, and I think what troubles me, I, I always say to people, I, I don't expect a lot of pagans, right? <laughs> you know, I expect I have a higher level of, of uh, anticipation of what I expect from from a Christian brother and sister. Right. And I and I think what's troubling about this is that Christian brothers and sisters can't sit down and they're and hear each other in yeah. this, right? It's they can't, and that troubles me because it makes me feel like you're getting your identity in something else rather than, yeah. okay, we're part of the body of Christ. Can we sit and just listen to each other and hear each other right. and figure out how we're going to move forward? Right. Um, families have to do this all the time. Yeah. Uh, husbands and wives have to do this all the time. Um, it's it's not, uh, and, percept- and that is the other thing too, I think. It's the myth-making and it's also position perception eats reality for lunch yeah. every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Right. I tell my students that all the time. When you're studying history, <laughs> you want to find out how people at that time perceived the situation. That's right. Because that's how they're going to operate. That's their reality. They're not going to operate from how you think they should have that's operated. Right. They're going to operate from their perception. Right. Uh, and so that's that's a part of it. So, Dr. Schmidt, I mean, let, let's just quick run through a bit, say, uh, how did we get to this state right uh, let's start with the 60s a little sure. bit and, and and help us understand this a bit like um we know that uh, a lot of white evangelicals they voted for richard nixon mm. uh in 1968 first 1972 billy graham endorses uh, 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 uh richard nixon, nixon. Yeah. uh 74 watergate yeah. right? and, and 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 uh nixon has to resign uh, but um, in, in the 76 election, um, we have the Jimmy Christian Carter, Democrat. the Christian Democrat, I'm born again. Yeah. And you actually find out when you dig down a little bit that, you know, Gerald Ford didn't do too bad with evangelicals. <laughs> right, right. Um, but it, it's really 1980, isn't it? That's really the turn point where the religious yeah. right really galvanizes. I think so. I think I think there's. You're, this is a, there's a lot to tackle, I think, in, in this. But I maybe this is a simple and and over, I hope not over simplistic way of looking at it. But I think if you come out of World War II, the shadow of that is it's almost incalculable. Yeah. How Americans and this is a fascinating story. If we went back further, which we won't do, is how Americans really galvanized their their love for America during the Great Depression, which is absolutely bizarre. You think the country let you down, but you come out of the Great Depression believing that it's Americanism that can save the world. This is what soldiers are saying when they go over to Germany and, and, and England in 41 and 42. We have to stop tyranny and the four freedoms that, that FDR wrote. So there's a shadow that, that Americanism has stood up to Hirohito and Hitler and now standing up to Stalin right. becomes reinforced and becomes this monolith for American culture by the mid-1950s. 
But of course, there's a generation coming along that didn't fight in World War II. Yep. That's one generation. Generation gap's really important because they don't, and this goes to what we've been saying, they don't have the memory of their dad yeah. that saw the slaughter of civilians in Japanese-held territories in World War II. Right. They weren't like their dads and moms who lived through the Great Depression and knew what grit required to get through that. So that group is sitting there waiting to sort of recalibrate its thinking on the world without that long memory. And then, of course, you've got, for the first time, television starting to show communities people didn't know were out there. African-American communities in the South are being blasted with hoses in 63 in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Someone in Vermont never saw this before. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's ethereal to them. They don't mm -hmm. even know what's going on. Similar to when people would have read Uncle Tom's Cabin right. in 1850. Oh, yeah, didn't yeah. know about it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, Beecher un unveiled that for, yeah. Yeah. You know, for, the, for the North in a lot of ways. Along with Theodore Weld and the Grimke sisters and all their, right. But anyway, so I, yeah, so I think what ends up happening, and and if I would say that the the beginning of this cultural crisis is this monolithic American culture that believes that free markets and freedom and Judeo Christianity and all these values which we now question are the only thing in the world that's going to save us from a communist takeover right. and atheism and all the death. And by the way. They didn't make that up. Right, that's true. That happened. Yeah. They didn't. Yeah. Yeah. They watched entire countries eat themselves. Right. And the dead stacked up like cordwood. Yeah. And we were very involved in Russia during the Russian Revolution yes. and prior. And so anyway, so that becomes a monolithic view. And, and of it, course, this whole time you're talking about Eastern European nation after another oh, yeah. is falling. It's falling to it. Like dominoes. Right, right. right. And, yeah. and, and the countries that are. the Iron Curtain is descending, up. as yeah, Churchill right. says. Right. Yeah. And, and the impact it's having on, on Southeast Asia and African Latin America, it's growing. Exactly. So, so there's this monolithic belief that the answer to that is the way that America does business. Then you've got the group under that for the way America does business actually doesn't work. Mm. You've got women that believe in it, but then are left out. You've got African-Americans that can't get jobs specifically, by the way. And this is something that we forget in this long story is blacks from the South in the 1890s when segregation became legally defensible because yeah. it didn't until the 1890s actually sprinted out of there in the mid during the Great Depression into the cities. Yes. Yeah. Part of the Great Migration. Great Migration. Yeah. Yeah. Great Excess. And they poured six million of them. Yes. And, and so they, they ended up in these cities very densely populated, no chance. So the American dream, which is the solution to the world's problems, is not working for all these people. Now, here's, here's the interesting, I think, about how the narrative goes into the 70s and 80s. You've got those for whom it's working, those for whom it's not. What's a solution? Martin Luther King Jr. says, the Constitution is our hope. He says, just let us in. Let us in. Give us jobs. The march in 1963 in D.C. Yeah. was a march for jobs. He didn't say, we don't like free markets. We need more free markets. Right. Jobs and a higher minimum wage. Right. Let, let, let's do what America does best. Let's give us our constitutional freedoms. And let us in. But then, of course, the longer this goes on and doesn't solve the problem, that there's a lot of groups, especially the black power groups and, and some of the feminists that went, you know what? It's not that America is a solution and we just aren't in. It's the problem. Yeah. And this, well, actually, the mar the the economic system is, is the, problem. the problem. Yeah, and yeah. and yeah. if you take that further, the whole cultural construct is not the solution in any way. It becomes the actual problem that we have to get rid of. And I think King actually makes a transition because of the Vietnam War. And there's a lot to say about that between '66 and '67, where his final, one of his final speeches are, "I think we need guaranteed income." Mm -hmm. Now he wouldn't have said that prior to the Compton riots in '67, right? '66. Right. He only said that afterwards when he realized this American system actually does not work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you start to see growing small but very concerted an effort to say the only way we get to the promises Americans have made since the beginning is to get rid of the American system as it is. Now, if you're mainstream America fought World War II and you hear that, yes, even if it's King talking, yes, and for many because it's King talking, 
Yes. You are another commie. Yes. That's going to bring us back to Stalinist Russia right, right. and wipe out 10 right. million people because you don't like that they have And there, there's also something that goes on in America, too, is that when America's at war, you're not really supposed to speak against the home team. Right. Right. There, there's that piece. And so you, you have that story going on. And, and, and the other story that, that's happening, and it, it's interesting, um, it's very common for people on the left, the political left, to, to say, you know, these evangelicals are obsessed with sex. They're always talking about sex, right? <laughs> but the reality is the sexual revolution yeah. is taking place in this That's same right. time period. Um, and it's, it's, it's radically changing the complexion of the United States right. uh, in its values. Right. And so, Evan, so, so I think you're right. I think you have two sort of places there. You have evangelicals who... Uh, one are reacting against the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is true. You have some that are. Uh, there's been some conversation, and this again is where the vitriol is not helpful. You know, white evangelicals is equivalent to white supremacy. You know, I've heard this. I've heard this in the in the blogosphere, and I've heard this from professors. Yeah, it's not just in the right. blogosphere. Yeah, uh, and and so there's something. Uh, innate in white evangelicalism that leads to white supremacy. I'm, I'm yeah. hearing this now. Um, but I think what you're showing is there's a connection between white evangelicals and their concern with King and the Cold War. Got it. But there's also this other narrative of sexuality happening, yeah. right? And, and the sexual revolution. And so, you know, early 60s, there's the birth control pill. And right. then, of course, the big one is Roe versus Wade in 1973. Um, but also, too, and it's hard to throw this off, that, you know, a number of fundamentalists uh, will emerge and become politically active, yeah. like Bob Jones University, yeah. uh, when race becomes an issue, right? So it, it, sometimes it's hard to disconnect those two. But... For the most part, the religious right, at least from the, 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 the print, has been, it's really been voting against Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that really becomes the Reagan model. Right. But it also, I think it also adopts a libertarian view of the yeah. government as well, right? Because yeah. it doesn't trust the government anymore. Right. Uh, but that, and, and, those, and those things really conjoin pretty, I mean, it, it's, it's impossible because it's, it, it's not even fair to say as we're doing in a very in a very sort of slipshod way, we're not we're not really unpacking all of this. That, it, as you can see, let's say from um, from a lot of the political races in the South in the 1960s and the Dixocrats and all that. That it's not that this is just all a fear of the Cold War. There's actual racism that's very clearly Absolutely. racism that uses the Cold War as an excuse for doing things. Billy Graham's an interesting example because he leaves all of his crusades um, segregated. Right. Um, and un- until until the uh, was it the Atlanta rally and I forget what year that was. It was mid-50s when he finally desegregated because a black leaders came and said do you realize you're separating your people and it dawned on billy graham this is not a cold war right issue but but if you look at billy graham sermons after the word i think gospel or jesus the word he uses more than that is communism right it's yes he's second, very much a cold warrior for a cold, but but the reason he's a cold warrior is because he sees the impact of atheism and yes. that and that model and those truths uh, those those ideas trickle down to private lives through sexual liberation and you got this whole gen gap group who teens yeah who are trying to blame their parents for all the stuff that are engaging in this, right? And yeah, it becomes a yeah. bit of a cultural war in that regard. Well, and I think it's fair to say we'd be fooling ourselves to to not be able to not point out that, that some of the people who develop critical theory, not critical race theory, yeah, but yeah, the yeah. Frankfurt School yeah. critical theory, connect economic exploitation with sexual repression. Oh, absolutely. 
Marcuse is very clear. Exactly, on that. it's very clear. Yeah. You know, it's in the ethos. Was it the yeah? The, the, uh, Eros and civilization. Yes, yeah. it's very clear in that, and and so there is a connection, right? So even today, when you look at a group like Black Lives Matter, and they say they're for against police brutality and race, but they're also against undoing the nuclear family, right? That that's, that's a direct echo from Marcuse, right? Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean that Marcuse and Black Lives Matter aren't right about certain exploitative problems. Right. It just means as a Christian, we have to be very careful and selective yeah. as to how we would respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think the simplistic response is to say, see, Cold War, <laughs> communist, Marxist, we're done. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a knee jerk because I think even those of us, people like us who are in our 40s, uh, and I tell people, I still remember getting under the desk for bomb drills in <laughs> kindergarten uh, during the Cold War. We were in high school when the Cold War ends. We're in college when the Soviet Union falls. We, we were catechized in that as well, yeah, right? Yeah. It, there's this, you know, anything Marxist is bad, right? right? You right. know, you, it's almost a it's, a, it's a, it's it's like cursing at someone. You're right. a Marxist. Right. right, it used to be anyway. It used to be, yeah. right, right. Now it's a bad. Are you a Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, call me Pinko, right? Call me Pinko. Um, better dead than red. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, I remember this stuff. Oh, yeah. Right? I remember this stuff. And so, uh, so that's still there. But I think you're right. I think we also now have generations who don't have that intellectual yeah. memory. And I think part of the problem is, and I, and I think we face this in our classes, all, I, we, you and I have talked about this when we teach history, we almost have to do apologetics for our class before we start. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, because and we're, we're, we have to uh, help people understand that you're not going to understand the current moment until you yeah. start to construct a narrative. Um, but I think that's also the scary thing, is there's multiple narratives being created yeah. in this. Um, and so that gets us, so, we, so what we can see is that where when we, when we move through the later 20th century, we, we have these political currents going through, we have these racial currents going through. Um, and so uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, just about uh, how we can help the church at this point. Because yeah. I think we're gonna come back, I think we should come back and talk about um, the rise of Trump and Trumpism yeah. and, and no, how that was a... influential. And then we need to come back and talk a little more about um, critical race theory, yeah. what that is, and, right. and how that developed, and, and maybe kind of provide some 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 help for people to negotiate this. Right. right? It's back to our word. Right. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing Christians not doing negotiation. Right. Right. Exactly. It's it's the yeah. you know there's no negotiation here. That's commie. You know, or that's fascist, right. or that's racist, that's this, right. and we move on. Right. Right? And we can't even agree on the definition of racism. No, no, um, no. So, no, and I think you're, I think you're right. I, I, I think even the idea, that, and I've seen this work with the students, and it helps them, because they come into the moment with these very clear moral categories, which aren't wrong necessarily. I mean, yeah. let's say on race issues, they may be more sensitive to things than I am, because I come out of a previous generation, and my... My yeah. sensory, you know, apparatus wasn't working as well. They weren't, they're more attuned to it than I am. And it's not that, they, it's not that they aren't sensing things. And I, always, I try to tell students, I don't think you're wrong about what you see. I, you see things that are wrong, that's fine. But you can't evaluate your own beliefs very well until you can place them inside the larger, larger narratives and understand why. Yes. why. Why is this happening? What are the streams leading up to it? How does your response connect back to a narrative you're not even aware you have? But it's been handed to you yeah. in so many different ways. There's no one starting from this blank. And I think even on both sides, and you say, yeah, and I, I think the Cold War has one of these, um, which is very real. The, the, the horror and crisis of the Cold War informs people, 
you have to defend Americanism and Judeo-Christian values at all costs. But then, of course, African-Americans who've been trapped under, you know, very uh, prejudicial and, and, and oftentimes violent, you know, you go back to lynching and, and post-reconstruction and, and all the end reconstruction. Well, that was a different phase, but slavery, that all is a memory, too. And, and you can't say to someone African-American, boy, you know, you should just get a job. I don't know what you're so upset about. Yeah, yeah. I, I look just at you and I go, hey, you're a guy. You've got opportunities. You, you know, go get a job like I did without paying attention to this massive narrative that leads into it. Yeah, and yeah. so to, to say to someone right or left, up or down, wherever they are, I'm going to evaluate in this moment alone. I think that's really what's happening mm. is we're, we're not taking that person and placing them. I'll give you an example of this. We had a guy come years ago, Salim Munir, who works in the Middle East, bringing Arabs and Christians, to, uh, Arabs and Jews together. Really interesting ministry. Um, and he said that um, he didn't understand, he was always a Christian, but he was very upset at the Jews for everything he had done to the Palestinians. He's a Palestinian himself. He said, in one year, in order to deal with that, I decided to go with the Jews to visit death camps. Hmm. And he said, I didn't understand until I walked through Auschwitz with them exactly mm. what they were talking about. Mm. Now, it's interesting now that he doesn't, he still doesn't excuse Israel. But he says, I fully understand, I understand much better why the Jew has such a difficult time accepting this. Mm. And, I, and I think this is what I've heard from a lot of my brothers and sisters. And I think one way the culture is very supportive, talk to someone who's African-American. Yeah. Understand what their experience has been like before you make evaluations. But I think on the other side of this, we have to understand that for many people, which, you know, I say they're privileged because they have jobs and all this, but you, you can't take out of their consciousness either the experience of the world that they have. Yes. And to say something like critical theory, whether or not there's even Christian problems with that, we'll deal with that in another podcast. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not cleaning it up. But to talk about certain things socially and changes is tying back into those fears, which are really real. They're yeah. not fictional. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying that there aren't racists out there. I'm not saying there aren't people that are genuinely anti-Christian, atheist, Marxist. That's all true. Sure. But as you said from the beginning, once we get inside the church, yeah. if we're not willing to hear what they're saying inside the narrative that they belong to, yeah. then we're not actually interested in the unity of the body. That's what scares me. And that's a costly thing. It, it, what I, what, in my, as you were speaking, what I had this idea in my head, this picture yeah. in my head, and I, it's extreme, but I think maybe what we're experiencing is we have people, body, human beings, who are walking into churches when we could walk into churches. <laughs> Turning on your Zoom. Walking into churches. Um, because this, these problems predated oh, Corona, right? Yeah. Corona's just really uh, revealed what was already there. Right, right. But we have people walking into churches and they're sitting next to each other in pews. They're singing songs together. They're listening to sermons together. They might even be going to Sunday school together. They might even have coffee and cookies together, right? But maybe when they leave the church and they get on these phones, when they get on their computers, they're actually going into very different communities yeah, no, that's right. and, 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 and living in sort of echo chambers. Maybe that's part of why we're having yeah. And now you have some churches where everybody in the church goes to the same echo chamber. Yeah. Uh, and of course, this doesn't always work. Not, not every, not, the octogenarians are probably not <laughs> tweeting. Some of them are, I'm sure, yeah, but I, I think this was mostly a younger person problem. But the... Um, but so we're, we're, our community of church is, is, well, this is what we do on Sundays right. and we go here and we do this, but this isn't actually my community Monday right. through Friday. Right. My community Monday through Friday might be my Twitter feed. Yeah. Uh, could be my, you know, am I being, am I, is my catechesis coming from, yeah. or is it coming from MSNBC and Fo or Fox News? And, 
And someone asked me this. They said, you know, are the pastors failing us, right? And I said, I think that's unfair yeah. to say that the pastors are failing us. The pastor can get up there and provide a great 45-minute sermon, just full of just great stuff. But if most of the time I'm spending is in these other places, then... yeah. And I wonder if that's it. I don't know. Well, no, I, I think it is that because I, I, I'll add the element. I think you mentioned it right there. What they're getting is not facts. What they're getting is not information. They're getting narrative. They're yeah. getting history. They're, they're retooling their memory. They're, they're actually positioning themselves inside a long story that's being crafted by a single group that has a single interest in how this is supposed to unfold. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and one thing I've said to students is history is very difficult because when you study it, you know, I don't know how to boil it down to a single narrative. Right. It's too complex. Yeah. And if you come out of, uh, and I don't mean popular history of the American people, Zinn or something like that, where you study history and you say, history convinces me that everyone else is wrong except this one stream and this one group, then you haven't looked at history at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you've, you've looked at some, some crazy myth that actually has no connection because if you actually study history, it's very hard. I'm not yeah. saying morality is hard to find. Yeah. I know it's morally right or wrong. Yeah. But if you actually get into the narrative, it becomes incredibly complex. Yeah. And I think what's in these echo chambers, why it's even that effective is not just that the chamber echoes itself, but it's directly intent on creating a singular narrative of the history. And after you listen to the narrative and you come out and you go, if this is the world, how can you be a Christian? Yeah. Because this is very clear. This is what's been right all along since the founding of the country to here, whether that's slavery is defined at all or whether yes. liberty is defined at all. If that's the narrative and it's all understood and you don't agree with me, you're not even rational at this yes, point. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I mean, so in some ways you can have people who come into the pews and they have the Patriot Study Bible, which is an actual <laughs> right, thing. It is a thing, yeah. And and maybe, so, you know, you go to another church and people have the Howard Zinn Study Bible, which is not a thing, but it, it <laughs> we could don't know be. that yet. Yeah, you know, yeah. right? It could be, but, but that, that's my point. Yeah, I mean, because exactly really, right. you're, what you do with that is you, you're, you're almost you're almost a setting the debt. You're setting yourself up because you're now going to read the Bible through that's this. Right. Yeah patriotic lens or you're going to read the bible through this critical Howard Zinn lens right. uh, and and it one of a good friend of mine um, uh, Brandon O'Brien who's written a number of books said this that sometimes what we have to realize is what's between us and the text hmm. that's his I can't take credit for that that's, that's <laughs> too bad um, and, I, and we had this great conversation about this and I think this is where historians are so important particularly historical theologians yeah. and church historians is this a lot of times people, Christians, think they can go to their Bible and they treat it like they're a scientist in a laboratory. Mm. That the that the, the room has been purified, right. it's been disinfected, right. and I'm just doing pure science at this point, or pure reading. And I think what we do as historical theologians, and we need to do this, is we need to walk into these laboratories with blue lights <laughs> and say, you didn't finish cleaning things up. Yeah. There, there's There's forensic matter in here that needs to be dealt with yeah and 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 this is what it is and it yeah. never means and, and it's and, and some people just throw their hands up and say well that means i can't understand the bible right no right. it means you need to rely on the holy spirit that much more that's right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it's 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 just and humility. Oh, yes. and humility yes yes yeah yes. and yes. and i and I've, I've said this to students the those things that bias your approach to scripture are really good things i yes. think it's god's gift because we're not just repeaters of information we're creators yeah so as we read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit in my life, it's not, not, not that new revelation, 
But the way that it's understood, I may see things that other generations haven't. But yes. here's the thing. They see things I don't. Yes. yes. And I think part of that hermetic, that, that, that cleaning you're, you're talking, is this, yeah. is this weird obsession with whatever's new and novel. Yeah. That because we're modern now and we can clean it up and know this, we know something they didn't. These poor medievalists were just so backwards behind. Yeah, right, right, so, right. They're biased. We're what so did, unintelligent. What did, uh, what did uh, uh, C.S. Lewis call that chronological snob. Right. No, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. The arrogance of the modern, and I, and and I think we get and here's and here's where the arrogance of the modern becomes so deadly, is that now that I know what's best, I can look back across the stream of history, and now I get it. Yeah. See, those guys they didn't get it, but I've got it. And once you think that, and, I, and I'm I'm thinking here of George Lakoff, and I've never read his stuff, mm-hmm. but Lakoff, who was very influential in the Democratic Party, back in the 80s and 90s to respond to all this, said the way to make something persuasive is to make it moral. Don't make it ambiguous. Mm. So if you take history and what I call moralize it, mm-hmm. then what you've done is you've created a black and white villain hero scenario, mm. right? Mm. Which now creates this expectation going forward that either you're going to be on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. Yes. If you're on the right side of history, you'll stand up to any problem whatsoever to do the right thing. Yes. The problem is that view is not historical in the slightest. Well, you've actually weaponized the past. You have weaponized the past. Yeah. And you've... Talk about sterilization. Yeah. You've sterilized the past as if there is a single narrative. Like if you were dumped back in the 1760s, 80s, or 1420s, you would know what to do or have a clear view on what it, on what's happening. Yeah. is absurd. Yeah. You've obviously never read the text or studied it. Right. It's far more complicated. Well, it, so I think I'll end with this because we're, we're about, I know, our yeah, time, and, and this, this will help. So you and I were teaching a humanities class together. Uh, I was having, and you provided some lectures. I was having a discussion with some of the students, and you had been lecturing on the world, on a worldview. What is a Christian worldview? And and, and the stu- one of the students I spoke with, she she asked me. She said, you know, I I, I never really thought about this before. Hmm. Right? This was, hmm. you know, she goes, and I always thought I had a Christian worldview because I'm a Christian. But then I hear some things, and I think, well, that sounds pretty good. And then I find out, <laughs> well, that's secular, so maybe I'm a closet secularist. And and then I hear this, and I think, well, no, that that sounds Christian. So I guess I'm a Christian worldview. And she said. How do I pick a Christian worldview? That was the question. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, unfortunately, you know, a Christian worldview is not like eHarmony, right? right? You can't just, you know, pick who you, which worldview you're going to date. Uh, I said, but I think as a Christian, and I've, I've benefited from this, in, in, in cleaning up my lab, cleaning up my space between myself and the text, what I've enjoyed and benefited from, and it takes humility, and I don't always get it, mm. um, but hearing from Christians from other walks of life. Yeah, yeah. There's the beauty in the body of Christ, mm. right? It's not just a cliche. You know, so Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor free nor slave, right? And so we think, okay, we're all equal in Christ. That's one part. Yeah. The other part is this. Imagine how vibrant that church is. Yeah. When the master and the slave and the Greek and the Jew are bringing their perspectives and saying, this is how I'm wrestling with the faith. This is how mm. I'm doing this. That part's not kind of in Paul's instruction, right? Right, right. But that's how it's, it kind of gets lived out. Yeah. Um, to, to how does my African brother and sister see this? How does my Latino right. brother and sister, how does my white suburban brother and sister? And, and, and we realize, okay, we can have this honest conversation because we're all going to spend eternity together. Yeah, that's right. Right. We're all going to be together in new heavens and new earth. We might as well start working on this now. Right. And, right. and so that's supposed to create the space. Yeah. But I, I, it, I think a lot of this is we really have to, where's our true identity? Is it yeah, in true. my faith or in my political allegiance right. or my myth that I've constructed for myself? So, And this uh, goes back to what we're doing here, Mark. We really, And this is not something we're doing for anybody. You and I are wrestling through this with a microphone turned on. Yeah. But we yeah. belong to a different kingdom. Yeah. And that kingdom may ask me to do something that doesn't agree with my politics, my society, my culture. 
I may have to be humble in a place where I don't think I have to be humble. Yeah. If I've been wronged by you, too bad. And Jesus says, no, go find the person that hates you and love them. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Gentiles and the Greeks were the ones that had all power um, to, to do whatever they want. The Jews had no power, and yet the Jews were taught to go out and love the Greek yeah. who had control of the government and the military all around them. Right. It's phenomenal. Yeah. But yeah. the gospel doesn't ask us to reorient the kingdom of God around the kingdom of man. Yeah. It asks us to reorient the kingdom of man around the kingdom of God. Right. And and that's where I think when we have competing visions of what the kingdom of God is. Right. And I think that's what that's... <laughs> okay, that's a great point. Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's another part of this question that we need to get at is what is the role of the citizens of the city of man? And, you know, are we being seduced by the city yeah. of man? Uh, yeah. Are we being prophetic of the city of uh, on the city of man? I mean, I think you, you're right. We're supposed to get the city of man to conform to yeah. the city of God in some way. Some way. And, and realize it's never going to be completed. Right. Um, it's not, we're not talking about some sort of millennial utopia. Right. Uh, but I, I think that the, the, if the, the one thing we can take away from this podcast is how do we do the negotiation? One of the first pieces of negotiation is, I think, is to humbly hear the other. Yeah. Uh, and not and listen not with your answer locked and loaded. That's right. That's right. <laughs> to actually hear the pain in your brother's voice or the misunderstanding right. or what, I think what, what our colleagues calls there's a, there's a psychological safety. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's a sense of maybe we need more of that. Kind and, I, of, and I would say I would say be more concrete on that in my way. I would I would I should challenge myself is hang my narrative up for a little bit. Yeah. Try not to explain for this person what I think they think or yeah. how I think they ought to think. And that yeah. I think that does go both ways, whoever's in the conversation. And if we can, I think this is what um, we've had some good good folks at the college helping us with that. Is this is this is a this is not just a two way, it's a three way, five way, six way street. Yeah. That you've got to come in and say, I'm gonna hold my narrative. I, I may not change my opinion. I'm going to change the way I look at this, but I'm going to hold my narrative. I'm going to ask you for your narrative, and then I'm going to try to rectify it as best I can. So what we're going to do with this, again, we're not trying to solve the problem. We don't have a solution. um, But we are trying to use what God's called us to be is ministers of the gospel as historians. And how can we help the body of Christ hear the narrative, understand the narrative? And I think one of the things we do so well as historians is historiography which most people have no time for right, yeah, right? Right. but it's so important, so important. And, and what is historiography it is the is how history is written it yeah. is how narratives are constructed right. and if if you don't understand that that there's a there's presuppositions baked into these various right. narratives then you'll just clash clash yeah. horns like that and so that's where i think we have a, a gift in it we're going to try to do this winsomely and humbly and not create right. more vitriol <laughs> uh even though we're posting this on social media <laughs> yeah. so no safety there well dr spadrick okay. this was a pleasure i'm yeah. looking forward to moving forward with this good thank so. you dr Drake.